RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Dr. Eric Crampton is the Chief Economist at the New Zealand Initiative. With the initiative, he's worked in policy areas ranging from freshwater management to policy for earthquake preparedness and from local government to technology policy. He's recently focused on policy related to COVID-19 response. He served as lecturer and senior lecturer in economics at the Department of Economics and Finance at the University of Canterbury from 03 to 2014. And we've asked Dr. Crampton to come on to Reality Check Radio to talk about something we've talked about a lot already here at RCR, that is soaring council debt levels that we're seeing across the nation. So, Dr. Crampton, welcome to our radio station. Uh, might even be the first time for you. It is. Thanks for having me. Okay, so, so far our impression is local body debt's out of control. Well, it is a bit. Uh, some of the councils are getting brushing up against their debt limits, or at least they are close enough to them that they wouldn't want to take on much more debt. So, for example, Wellington likes to maintain a bit of headroom just in case the earthquake hits. And once you've got that headroom in, in, accounted for, Wellington can't really take on much more debt. A lot of South Island kind of rural councils have been responsible. They've kept debt under control. Queensland or Queenstown, maybe not so much. But in general, it's a problem for uh, councils that have a lot of growth. Unfortunately, uh, councils have also loaded up their balance sheets with an awful lot of nonsense or assets that don't really pay much of a return. And that means that as water infrastructure comes up for renewal uh, and maintenance, they've got some problems paying the bills. Yeah, um, we uh, talked to a councillor in, in Dunedin, or a few months back, and uh, we were kind of surprised to learn that they were paying a million dollars a week in interest on their debt. Yeah, and that can be all fine if you're taking on debt for the right reasons. So imagine that you've got a large council asset, like a public facility that people are going to enjoy for decades. It'd be crazy trying to pay for that all in the year that you build it. You'd want to spread the cost of, of it over the lifetime of people who are going to be enjoying it and even into the next generation of people who would be enjoying it, right? Depending on how you want to structure the debt. But if you're taking on a lot of debt and interest costs for projects that could never really pay their way, and that didn't make much sense in the first place, well, that's a different matter entirely. It's a millstone. What what, what could be an example of that? Well, I think that uh, Dunedin did have some regrets after they took on uh, the large debt from the stadium. So if we go back to circa 2008-2009, the Prime Minister Key was quite keen on that Dunedin put up a lot of money towards a stadium for a World Cup. And then Dunedin got pretty excited about having a a really expensive stadium. And they've enjoyed it since. But it's incredibly expensive for a not very large town. And that meant that a lot of other things got got squeezed. So there was a period in the 2010s when Dunedin was... They, they were under a fair bit of financial pressure, and their ratepayers were pretty annoyed about it. Um, I think that the, the they had an incoming mayor who, well, he'd opposed the stadium when the spending had gotten gotten approved, but was stuck with that afterwards and having to deal with the consequences. Here in Wellington, uh, where I live, well, we've taken on a fair bit of debt for a new convention center. We I was going to ask have- you about that convention center, because... Um- it's Rolls-Royce. Um, ever since I've been back in town, it's been upsetting the traffic flows. There's been that. But also, um, and I know you've got more to say, but uh, this one's an interesting sure. one for me, because um, are convention centres relevant like they used to be anymore? 
Is that a clever spend of what, what must be well over a hundred million bucks by the time it's all washed up? Yeah, it, it was more than a hundred million. I think it was 120, but I'm just going from memory here. I'd want to double check it. Um, there are less bad ways of going about it. So if a convention center makes sense, it's because attracting a lot of conventions in is good, good for the local business community and the neighboring restaurants and hotels and all of that. But if that's really the case and what's really going to happen, then you might expect that those businesses who would be purportedly benefiting from it could stump up some of the mill. So what you will see in places overseas is um, convention centers being sited right near a lot of hotels where then if a convention comes in, some of the breakout rooms will be in the hotels that are right near the convention center. And the convention center has the very large plenary room that none of the hotels would have on its own. So a simple example, I can step back in time a little bit. Uh, in Washington, D.C., when I was a, a grad student, uh, the American Economics Association's annual meeting was at uh, a convention center in town. But a lot of the meetings and a lot of the sessions were in the hotels that were all adjacent. So you'd go across and you'd go and hear talks at one or the other. And because the um, those meetings are also where everybody does their job interviews for pretty much every academic job in the world in economics, those interviews also ha- took place at the adjacent hotels. It was all connected. If a bunch of hotels said, we'd like to have a bit of help in getting a main facility and it'll all be linked up to our hotels and we can have co-host some of this stuff. Well, maybe there'd be a case for that. Yeah. But they tend not to stack up all that well as uh, local government spend otherwise. Like everybody loves the idea of them. They like cutting the ribbons for them. But the business cases on them are a little a little shaky. They're not, they're not going to easily uh, recoup the capital or cover their costs. Well, I, I, I drive past that one particularly um, every day almost, and I've noticed that there's only been one kind of feature exhibition there for months and months and months, and that is the Lego one, I think, and that's it. I haven't seen anything new there. Could have missed something. What I'm thinking, though, is in this era of Zoom and virtual get-togethers, when you've got 2,800 pipes that are leaking in the city, you know, what comes first, you know? Yes. What comes first is the right question. Now, during lockdown in the year afterwards, I was similarly thinking that there would be a greater retrenchment to work from home and more virtual meetings. And we're having one of these right now. Uh, I'm currently working from home because uh, daughter is laid up with COVID and oh. I don't want to spread it around the Thank office in you. case in case I happen to have it. I hope I don't. Still negative, but you can't really trust a negative test just when you've got it in the house. Right. Um, people still really get a lot out of face-to-face. And half the point of a conference isn't showing up to hear the speaker. It's meeting up informally with everybody else who's attending there, all the serendipitous meetings that just happen because you're all with a bunch of people who care about the same stuff that you do. You're all in the room together. You go and have a coffee. You discuss ideas or potential projects. There there can be a lot of case for that. But... Okay. That being a priority over the pipes is is silly. Yeah, well, it seems to be the way, and that's what we've heard from sort of multiple areas, that there there have been lots of nice-to-have, which have kind of come from the council, the non-elected council side, and sort of pushed towards the elected officials. And it seems, anecdotal, that a lot of the elected officials just kind of 
rubber stamp it or they don't put up much resistance to some of these nice to have. So therefore they're kind of putting on the people, the people who have elected them, they're kind of putting them on the rack for debt um, where, and they're, they're too easy. They're pushovers. Is there anything in that? Well, it's pretty easy for council officials to put up cases to councillors that make it look like there's no alternative. So right now in Wellington with the town hall, uh, council is contemplating spending up to $320 million in uh, earthquake strengthening. Reform. That is insane. Surely that's insane. Yes, that's insane. But the case that the officials have put up is that there might just be no way out of it for for the for Wellington Council, given the set of rules that it operates under. So he, here's the true craziness. Um, the town hall must meet earthquake strengthening rules by a specific date. Those rules require that the building is safe, either because it's been fixed or because it's de- been demolished. All right. So that's one set of constraints that council has to operate under. Now, from where they are, they haven't got a lot of time left. If they wanted to demolish the building, they would be tied up in court for so long they would miss their deadline in for the earthquake strengthening works because the kinds of people who love heritage when other people pay for it will yeah. tie them up through the courts and take the environment court and then the high court and litigate and litigate and litigate. And, and who knows whether they'd win, right? So if they won, then council in three, four years' time would be stuck in the same spot they are now, except from a more difficult position because the building would have rotted further over the interim. Yeah. Another alternative, maybe council could try delisting the building, just get it off the Heritage Register so it's not on the district plan anymore, and council then might have more flexible options for strengthening works because like resource consents can also get tied up through the courts forever. And one ground for litigating is, well, say the council decides that they want to avoid like another tens of millions of dollars of cost of something that's like a minor detail on the building that nobody's ever really going to notice except for some like really crazy heritage people. Well, consent for cost effective strengthening works could again be tied up in the courts forever and ever and ever. If you, if you were able to delist the building, all of that gets easier and council wouldn't have as much of that high end risk. So on this building in particular, a lot of the cost escalation has been on the geotechnical side. They found that the ground underneath it was far worse than they had first expected, although they had given a lot of warnings that this could end up with a cost blowout, but it like started with $40 million and now it's up to 329. Incredible. Um, yeah. yeah. But council could get it, get itself out of it. The way, uh, so the officials said, well, councillors, you've got no alternative. Either you spend up to $329 million fixing the building now, or we wind up in court for years, and you might still have to wind up spending more than that after that process is done. So do what you want. Okay, so that's a there is no alternative scenario. Now, and it's crazy. What would really be required is a local bill that uh, would allow council to simply delist the building. So right now, delisting a building goes through this big resource. Cons- uh, it's basically a district plan change that goes through all of those processes with all of the potential appeal rights and litigation and submissions and all of that. That takes forever. And who knows what, what happens at the end of it? Wellington Council could choose 
to set a local bill. So a local bill is a fun thing. It's a piece of legislation that local council wants to apply within its area and its area only. They could ask for a piece of legislation that would enable Wellington Council by a simple majority vote to delist the building, to make the decision to delist non-justiciable so that you wouldn't be able to tie it up through the courts, and that a delisted building would be deemed to have no special amenity, heritage, character, or other value for any resource consenting process in future. Short piece of legislation and local bills are really fast. They go through on the order of... In Parliament, there's members days that that consider uh, local bills on alternate days, so alternate Wednesdays. So one Wednesday is going to have members bills, another Wednesday is going to have local bills, local bills go to the front of the queue, they hit first reading really, really quickly. And it would seem surprising if an incoming National Act New Zealand First government would not want to enable Wellington Council to save an awful lot of money so that it could put the money towards the pipes. So a local bill would be a way out of this. So, yes, you're right. Officials can kind of railroad councillors into spending an awful lot of money and present things as though there's no alternative. Often there are alternatives, but it takes councillors being willing to go and take that extra step because sometimes it almost feels like they want there to be no alternative. So that, well, you can't blame us for spending $300 million on this thing. Central government forces us to. You can choose to put up a local bill to untie your hands. If you don't do that, well, maybe we should make some, maybe we could draw some inferences about what you really want here. Yeah, yeah. Or just leave it. I mean, it survived the nearly eight that we had that I was in town for. It didn't fall down. Some modern buildings fell down on that. I mean, sometimes you wonder, I'm not being sort of reckless here, but you wonder um, that, that we get obsessional for, um, you know, um, trying to make things as safe as possible to the point where it's, Actually, the value is just not there. Well, yeah, uh, and lots of places are under similar restrictions. So council is in a bit of a bind where if the, once the building is listed they ha- on the earthquake register, they have seven and a half years for priority buildings and 15 years for other buildings to make them safe. And that's a rule from central government. Uh, if they fail to comply with that, well, they can get in trouble and it's not a good look for a local council to be ignoring the law. Um, Fair enough. Now, but whether, a, whether a the whole silly. regime is... <laughs> well, the whole regime is probably not fit for purpose, but given the regime, councils are kind of stuck. And yep. it's especially hitting a lot of small towns. So you'll have all of these small town main drags where it's unreinforced masonry, old buildings that would cost an arm and a leg to fix up and whose current tenancies could never provide a stream of rental income sufficient either for strengthening or for rebuilding the building. So it's it's a terrible spot. Um, another example that came out of Dunedin when we were chatting about that uh, with one of the councillors uh, some months ago was, uh, for a start, uh, their uh, ratepayer base had the lowest disposable income in the country, I think is how he put it. But they're only 17,000. And there was yeah. um, great concern that there just wouldn't be enough in the ratepayer base if things carry on as they are to cover that debt. What happens when the debt gets beyond the ability of the, the ratepayer base to service. What happens then? Well, it depends quite what you mean by that. Uh, if you mean councils trying uh, okay, to get beyond... I, what I mean by that, you'd have to raise rates to a point where it's yeah. just not affordable by, you know, the average, whoever that yeah. is. Yep, got it. So one of two things happens. In the limit, 
council debt is guaranteed by every single rated property. If they have to, council can just keep increasing rates to pay their bills, which they have to do. That's how apportionment works. So council sets its budget. If a lot of that budget is interest payments on debt and capital repayments on debt, well, that has a lot less headroom for spending money on other stuff. Council increases rates, apportioned across everybody to pay those bills. And if you can't pay the bill, well, you get a little bit of time for deferment, but in the limit, council will auction your property and give you whatever money is left uh, after they've paid off the outstanding rates. So it would be a good idea for ratepayers to be a little bit more vigilant over what councils are spending money on and the debt they're taking on because really it's your house that's at stake. Now, it's un- it's less likely that it ever gets to that. Like if a council starts showing signs of that kind of financial distress, central government would step in and put um, commissioners in, in place of council to try and get finances back on track. But some places could wind up in difficult spots, and especially if there are huge water bills yet to pay. It's a terrible mistake to load up with a whole pile of other debt if a giant bailout from central government on water isn't coming. Yeah, because I see in Auckland's case, I think um, the debt's about $12.8 billion. The mayor's talking about a 20% um, increase in water. You just mentioned that, 13% maybe for the rates. The interest rates have gone up already. People are paying a lot more for that. There's a real squeeze going on. So it is possible that people will reach their limit. Oh, there's always priorities, right? And what I... New Zealand used to have some better mechanisms around this, right? So if you go back to like the 1913 Local Bodies Loans Act, ratepayers had to approve major debt issuance. So if council wanted to go and spend a lot of money on something through debt, you had to have a ballot of affected ratepayers. And you had really neat institutions at the time, too, that just helped make sure you didn't wind up in these white elephant situations. So, for example, we'd put we'd had a report on this. Uh, we put out in the middle of the winter I, I called Funding the Future, the Case for Special Purpose Bonds. It's on our website. If you look through from the 1913 legislation, it required if council wanted to do no, say that you wanted to put in a whole pile of new sewerage works and new roading works for one ward of the district, like the North Ward. Uh, well, you put the proposal to the affected ratepayer saying, this is what we propose to do. This is why we think it's a good idea for you. Here's how much more you're going to have to be paying in your rates to finance the debt that is taken on for this project. Okay, so they would list and every one of these gets listed in the New Zealand Gazette. It's fun. You can go through the old back issues of the New Zealand Gazette and see all of these proposals for debt issuance and then whether they're supported by ratepayers or not, because ratepayers had a say in it. Gee. Um, But it says exactly what you're going to be paying and what the project is for. And if a supermajority of ratepayers didn't approve, the project didn't go ahead. You didn't just need a majority. You needed a supermajority. And and that at work, if a project was actually worthwhile, like if I'm thinking about my neighborhood, if they said, Eric, do you want to pay an extra 50 bucks on your rates per year for the next 20 years for a whole pile of nice stuff in Candela Village? I'd say, yeah, that sounds great. Sign me up. I'll pay an extra yeah, 50 bucks yeah. a year for the next I'm 20 years. Yeah. But if it's for something stupid, I'll say no. <laughs> it gives you the choice. Um, that mechanism also made sure that the beneficiaries of the project were the ones who paid for it. If it was a project for the North Ward, 
It was the residents and it was the ratepayers of the North Ward that paid for it. It wasn't people all over the rest of the city. We lost that principle. And I think it was around 1995, they changed legislation saying that, well, instead of trying to target the costs of a project to the beneficiaries of the project over time, council should spread those costs over everybody in the current term. Well, what that means is that nobody is watching very closely anymore because you're not paying the costs of the projects that are benefiting you. And also everyone kind of has a weak incentive to just oppose everything because you wind up bearing the costs of projects that have nothing to do with you. And it, it just wrecks all of the dynamics around how councils should be funding these kinds of works, right? You had this old system where if a project made sense, the people who benefited from it would say so and they'd pay for it. Or like you had debt that was issued in 1924 is one of these that I was looking at. It has spanned 33 years, right? So a project that take 33 years to pay off, yeah, let's go for it. Well, yeah, now yeah. they have it, it just doesn't work that way anymore. Ratepayers have kind of lost control over those major projects, and the risk winds up falling on ratepayers because it's our properties that back it all. That sounds like common sense to me. Well, it'd be really good <laughs> to go back to those kinds of mechanisms. There's so much work that needs to get done and could be enabled through these kinds of structures. Like it's not in that era, it wasn't just councils that would come up with projects like let's have a new set of sewerage works and roads for the North Ward. You would also have communities coming up with their own projects. And I just love these things. Uh, I, I'm in Candela and Wellington. A 20 minute walk from my house is the Nio Town Hall. I know. And it. My kids, yeah. yeah. Very good. So my kids did the Kumon classes there. A picture of it from that era is right right on the cover of our report. Now, that town hall didn't come up through horse trading where like the local councillor went in and said, okay, council, let's spend millions of dollars on this project for my constituency. No. The NIO Progressive Residents Association, which is a purely voluntary community association, thought it would be a good idea to have a town hall. So they asked their members, who are the local rate payers, Hey, would you like to have a town hall? Here's what we think it would cost. We'll run the debt over 10 years. Here's how much you would have to be paying extra on your rates over the next 10 years to cover the cost of the thing. They held a ballot. They said, yeah, we think it's a great idea. We want this for our community because it benefits us. Then the Residents Association could go to council and say, look, we've got the support of our community for a special ratings area over our district to finance the debt that would pay for a town hall for us. And then Wellington Council, all it has to do is draw the line and collect a little bit more in rates. Done. Easy. Yeah. It, it enables these things. It enables voluntary community. And wait, like now we've got this learned helplessness where if a community wants something, they go and bleat to council saying, oh, council, give us this thing. We want this thing and have somebody else pay for it. Uh, that, that's not sustainable, right? In that prior era, it was going instead saying, we are ready to foot the bill for this thing that we value. Just help us do it. And Easy. it's still there today, right? Still serving its right. function, an asset to the community. What about the LGFA? I believe most of the um, local government debt is through that agency. Yep. Correct, correct me if I'm wrong. But um, they, they have limits, right, and ratios. So... Yep. How does that all work, and at what point um, could a council or a local body get into trouble there? 
Well, accounts will get into trouble if they have debt in excess of 280% of their annual revenues. So most councils aren't near that, but each council will be maintaining its own buffer of headroom that it thinks is safe. Some are very far from the debt limit. A couple are pretty close to it, and I don't have the list in front of me right now. But that is what is stymieing some of what's going on in Three Waters. So the the convoluted governance structures that the government came... Well, I, I'll, I'll come back to that. We'll just stick with LGFA for now. I'm getting myself side-railed into the implications. Okay. LGFA... LGFA works to market local government debt. So local councils want to put up debt. They've got some reason for things that they want to fund. They go to LGFA. LGFA puts the debt out to market. One of the covenants on that debt is that councils cannot take on more than 280% of their revenues as debt. And if they do, then they're in breach of their covenants. LGFA can put in a call-in notice on the debt saying, okay, councils, you've breached your covenants. You've got to repay your debt. And I can't remember if it's 60 or 90 days, but it's some pretty short period. Yeah, you, you don't want to hit that, right? They'd be scrambling like that, crazy to try and meet that. Well, if they if they hit that, they would probably have to go to other market sources to pay off the debt or to like to refinance. And I expect they'd be hitting some pen, uh, penalty interest rates if they tried it that way, if they were in that kind of a distress situation. Yep. If they'd lined it up ahead of time, that'd be something different. So you don't want to breach your 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 debt limit in that sense. Now, in maybe in some better world, they would be able to just bear a higher interest rate cost if they had lots of really good projects with debt in excess of the limits. But um, well, if they, if you breach the covenant, they'll they'll get in trouble. And uh oh, and what about it, well, with rising? That. What about with rising interest rates? How does well, that affect it? Is that debt locked in at a particular rate or is, is that rate renewed? And and because everything's going up, uh, obviously. Uh, it'll, de it'll depend on the term structure of each council's debt. And I really, I'm not, okay. I'm not yeah. across that. But right. as, as bits of debt roll over, it'll get refinanced at the higher rates that apply at the time when people are willing to put money into local government debt in New Zealand. That debt is very secure because again, ultimately it is backed by each of our properties. So just as a, <laughs> nice. as a, well, it, it, it is really secure. So I'd run the numbers on it for like my house. If our house were, if I stopped paying my rates for like two centuries, then the accumulated rates bill would be the same as the value of the house. Okay. Uh, You're longer so, on but yeah. Uh, well, yeah. It, it means that it's really, really unlikely that you're going to get into a spot where if council, um, if people, if people yeah. were falling into debt arrears, that there wouldn't be the asset base there to pay off the debt. So the debt gets very highly rated because of that ability to go back to everybody's properties as recourse. Now, what you need to have is that mechanism for the kind of special purpose debt that is separate from council main balance sheet debt. So it doesn't wind up triggering those debt limits. And that gets into what was going on in some of the government's three waters reforms. So councils were getting to a spot where because they had some of them had loaded up their balance sheets with a pile of nonsense and had ignored their pipes for a while, they couldn't issue, uh, if they tried to renew all of their pipes, they would be issuing more debt than they could under their debt limits and then everything explodes. So the government was trying to figure out how can we set a separate entity that is viewed as separate by the ratings agencies and uh, potential creditors. Because like imagine that Wellington water fell over now, um, 
Well, you would expect that the underlying councils would bail it out. And if the underlying councils would bail it out, then its debt is really council's debt in the limit, and it would be treated as such by the bond ratings agencies. So it seemed to me, at least, that half of the stuff that they were coming up with, with these really complicated governance structures where, okay, councils, you no longer own your pipes, and you actually don't, you you kind of own the water service entities, but not really. And there's really these really complicated governance structures that have a lot of uh, other appointments on them. That A lot of that seemed designed to make it less likely that people would see councils as being the fallback if one of these WSEs fell over, that, you, that they wanted to look uh, as separate as possible in that sense. Another approach would just be setting legislation saying that all water service entities are now crown are council-owned entities or crown council-owned organizations. Councils are prohibited from bailing out COOs. Councils, uh, the CO, the water service entity, the council-owned entity, owns the pipes, can set its own rates, is regulated by the Commerce Commission to make sure that they are like just standard utilities regulation that they're not overcharging people, that they're setting rates that are consistent with what it actually costs to keep the pipes up, laying out new pipes, get, get all of that right. There, there are fairly sta- standard ways of dealing with this. We do it already with the local electricity lines companies. It's not all that complicated. Lots of precedent for it. And say that councils are forbidden from bailing out the COO if anything happens. And like set a giant penalty on council if it does anything that looks like a bailout. Maybe have the Auditor General watching in case anything looks like a bailout. Set it as legislatively separate in that sense, and then the water service entity can issue its own debt backed by the revenues from the water system. Yeah, and that and that provides all the incentives that are appropriate because one of the problems in Wellington is that council just for like a decade has not been giving Wellington Water the um, joint entity that provides water services enough money to deal with the pipes because because it, it's a sham of a well it's a it's a nonsense of a structure. Wellington Water does not own its own pipes hmm. and it doesn't really get to decide how much to spend on keeping them up. Instead, it survives on what. Bits of money get drip fed by councils that would prefer blowing money on convention centers. Yeah. And then you wind up with the pipes all in a mess. Um, talking about that uh, situation um, in, in NIO and, you know, going back all those years got me also thinking because I've been in and around Wellington for a long time, you know, as a kid on up. And I do remember, you know, that um, the council had a full, used to drive past their yard, a full sort of kit of, of infrastructure to deal with works. They had diggers, they had front-end loaders, they had, um, you know, those things that scrape huge amounts of dirt out. They had yeah. people doing it. They, it was like they had their own capability to do these works in-house already there. Um, th- that doesn't seem to exist anymore. Uh, I'm just wondering, if again, yeah. if, if that was like it was back in the day, that they'd have so much more capability available to them without having to go to market and pay rack rates, you know, to Fulton Hogan or whoever does this sort of work and and at the sort of at the mercy of, of, of you know, the, the contracting sector. They could do it themselves. Is there anything in, in that or is that just a quaint old thought from the past? Well, you'd have to... Contracting out can be pretty efficient. If you've got a company that specializes in that one thing, it will tend to be better at it than 
an organization that's across a lot of different things. Well, remember that um, organization dug all the pipes originally as well. I know yeah. I used to live in Wallace Street and I, I had a collapsed line. So I, I actually found out a lot about the piping there. It was all done by the council, all in the uh, early 1900s. And and all, everything was laid down by the council sure. back in the day. So they've done it before. Yep. Uh, and it'd be up to each, like, if we had a restructuring where water went into council-owned entities, it'd be for each of those council-owned entities to decide how much work they want to do themselves and which tasks are better outsourced to other specialists. And I've got no set views on any of that. Uh, it'd be a discovery process to find out what works best, right? And run it that way. You've got lots of different COOs that are all providing water in different ways. You, they all might learn from each other to see what works best. Okay, so in the end, the only way of what guarding against excesses is by taking an active interest and role in in understanding who is standing for councillors, what those councillors are about, how effective they are, and and actually become engaged and be part seriously part of the voting process. Is that that's really the only thing that you can do in the end, isn't it? Well, that's what we can currently do. I would really like to be able to get back to structures legislatively where ratepayers had to authorize major projects and authorize debt issuance that's backed by the rates on their properties. That would give an additional check on whether the projects actually made sense. If you're presented with the uh, the option, right? So here's the project. Here's how much it's going to cost in rates on your property over the next however long. Do you want it or not? And the other thing that happens if you've got that kind of special purpose debt that's backed by the revenues from the project, whether they're a levy on the benefited property owners or just straight benefit levies uh, rather than rates or revenues from the project, when you take that debt to market, you also get a market-based assessment of whether the project is viable. So if I went out saying, well, I'm going to put up a giant new stadium in Christchurch and... The whole thing is going to pay for itself from ticket prices, from people who show up to, to events. Well, I take that, 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 that to market and I'm selling these bonds and the bonds are backed by the revenues that I get from people renting the stadium for events and tickets and all that. But I, I have to be able to convince people with real yeah. money on the line that the project yeah. is going to be worthwhile, right? And that can yeah. pay itself off. That's a harder ask than convincing a few councillors that it's a great idea because they often want to convince themselves, even if it isn't. Okay. Is there anything more we need to know about this scene, um, given that we don't you know, um, have much time left? Is there anything else that uh, you'd like to mention, anything we've missed before we end our chat? No, that mainly covers it. But the case for getting this sorted out is going to be really increasing. Um, there's a whole ton of works that are going to need to be done. And one thing that I worry about is councils uh, fearing, like with, say, sea level rise or things that councils worry about, they're going to decide that it is too risky to let people continue to live in some places. And then you start getting into arguments around forced retreat and buying places out. Our audience doesn't like that term, I can tell uh, you. I, I don't like that either. But an alternative, and you can see why councils would do this if they think that they've got this massive potential liability. For they can limit it. Ride services. Yeah. You can limit the liability by saying, look, hey, okay, neighborhood, you want to keep living here, and that's great. We think in 50 years that it's going to be incredibly expensive to pay for the infrastructure. You own, from now on, you guys just own the infrastructure. Your neighborhood association yeah. owns, owns your infrastructure. Deal with it. Yeah. And here's a mechanism for raising debt, levying yourselves to pay for it. And if you can make a fifth of it, 
great, right? You can make that trade-off instead of somebody else deciding for you. Dr. Eric Crampton, Chief Economist at the New Zealand Initiative. Thanks for coming on to our radio station and explaining all that. Really appreciate it. It was really interesting. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.